0: Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad.
1: Hello, everybody. Just before we start the, inter- the interview with Carol Ford and Linda Groundwater talking about Bob Crane, um, they wrote Bob Crane, the definitive biography. I just want to mention this episode was supposed to come out last week to celebrate Bob Crane's 94th birthday because that was the day of his birth. And <laughs> as luck would have it, Um, I lost power for almost a week and was not able to edit or get the stuff done. And then, of course, as soon as that was resolved, um, there's the various cleanups and things you have to do when you lose power for a week um, or just basically a week. Uh, But it's taken care of. Everything's fine now. And um, so now you're going to get to listen to the episode, and I hope everybody enjoys it. And I hope you learn a lot more about Bob Crane. Hope you enjoy. Talk to you later. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And this time we're going to be talking about Bob Crane, because this episode is going out on his birthday, where he would be, I believe, 94 years old today on July 13th. And I'm joined by two wonderful ladies who wrote Bob Crane, the definitive biography, Carol Ford, who I've met many times at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, and Linda Groundwater, who I'm meeting for the first time, coming all the way from Australia, but she's not native there. When you hear her talk, you'll know she was originally from Massachusetts. (laughs) How are you both doing? Very well, thanks, thank you. And I wanna thank both of you for writing the book. I got it from Linda, uh, what was it, seven or eight years ago? I mean, seven years ago, because it came out in 2015.
0: Yes, it came out in 2015, um, and that was the year that I was at the Nostalgia Convention. Um, and I gave the presentation, had uh, Hogan's cap with me that Bob from Scott had let me borrow. Uh, so that would have been the year that, um, yeah, you probably picked it up at that point, yeah.
1: And I remember reading it that year, and for those that want to know about Bob Crane, the, the definitive biography, the true story, the real stuff, not just the, ses- the sensationalism of his, like people sensationalize his end, but the real man, the, this book is there, and um, you guys do touch upon it at the very end on on that that book but mostly it's focused on his life and how everything he did and i want to thank both of you for actually putting out such a fine work
2: thank you thank and you it, and it is important to to remember that bob did have a whole life um because there is so much focus on his death especially at this time of year of course but then even when it comes to his birthday and you know and and his, his death anniversary they're all fairly close together, and Anytime somebody talks about him, they talk about his death. And there was just so much more to Bob than the last moments of his life. Absolutely.
1: And just before we start getting a lot more into Bob Crane, so people understand where each of you guys are coming from, Linda, what, what's your backstory? What led you to go into this area and down the road, write the book? So what, what's a little bit about you, a little bit of about Linda? Oh,
2: well... Um, the, the, the long story short is, uh, I am a, a native New England girl, um, as Bob was a native New Englander and I was in radio as Bob was in radio. And, uh, and I always enjoyed watching Hogan's Heroes with my dad growing up. Um, and at some point while I was already living in Australia and Hogan's Heroes has been running here nonstop since at least the first time I noticed it in 2002. It's never gone off the air, uh, and it was probably running well before then. I watched an episode, and I thought, gee, I remembered hearing that Bob Crane had died in a not-very-nice way, and I couldn't remember anything about it. And so I looked it up on the Internet, and all I saw was murder and sex and murder and sex and murder and sex, and oh, in the middle of that was hey, he played the drums. Hey, he was a big deal in radio. Hey, he did this kind of charity work. And you really had to dig and dig and dig to find that kind of information. And I thought, you know what? This isn't really fair. And the the part of me that just can't handle those things just said, you know what? I'm going to do something about this. And from that point on said, I'm going to start doing, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to do it. Um, I knew that I was 10,000 miles away from where I really needed to be to get it done and just started, reached out to WICC Radio in Connecticut and found Bob's cousin. And he was one of the first people that um, came to the party and said, yep, you know what? There is a lot more to him and and I'm going to help you. And then I got Carol and Dee and it just exploded from there. And these ladies just made everything happen.
1: Okay. And, and Carol, what's your backstory and how it got up to where Linda's at?
0: So when I was a kid, so I was not old enough to watch Hogan's Heroes tears during its first run, uh, back in the sixties. Uh, when it ended in 71, I would just been born in 69. So that wouldn't have been a show I would have been watching <laughs> as an infant. Um, <laughs> but in the 1980s, it was playing all the time on our local UHF station, and I was in junior high school and high school, and I just really fell in love with Hogan Um And back in the 80s, unlike today, where we have information just at the touch of our fingertips by just doing a quick Google search, you didn't have that back in the 80s. And so what I would do is I wanted to learn more about the cast, but par- primarily about Bob Crane, um, because I was just drawn to the whole show and so forth. And so I would go to our county library. My mom and dad would go to the mall. The county library was across the street. They'd go to the mall. They'd drop me off at the library for two hours. I'd sit there, and I'd be down in the microfiche um, room, and I'd be, like, printing out all, you know, copies of 1970s newspapers and so forth. But it was then that I discovered that Bob had been murdered, and I I was just 15. And I was like, wow, you know, and it was unsolved, and nobody knew who did it, and why did they do this? And I had no idea what any of this meant, but I just knew that at some point, this was something that I wanted to learn more about. So I started to research even more, which again, in the 80s and 90s, it's not like we have today. And, you know, being a kid, learning then in the late 80s, early 90s, that Bob had been um, what I didn't realize was a sexual addiction at that time, Um, you know, I was really upset by that. And I didn't know how to process that because this is somebody that I had, you know, been a fan of. Um, But then as I got to, you know, learn more and get a little bit older and, be a little bit more understanding of people, I thought, well, there's got to be more to his story. So fast forward to the 2000s, where we have the internet and Hogan's Heroes Listservs are now up and running. Linda has posted to one of the Hogan's Heroes Listservs and says, hey, uh, I'm doing some research. I'm writing a book about Bob Crane. Does anybody want to, um, you know, does anybody, ha- not does anybody want to help, but does anybody have any connection to Hogan's Heroes cast or whatever and so Linda and I started talking at that point and what eventually happened was we we joined up because from where she was in Australia it was next to impossible to do boots on the ground here in America and so I traveled a lot for work and I had resources in the publishing industry where I could reach out and do more of the here stateside, and so between Linda and Dee, who joined on because of knowing, having met Bob when she first started at WICC, um, she really had the the Connecticut radio connections at that point, um, along with Bob's cousin Jim, um, and then between the three of us, we joined forces. This is not a book that I believe could have been done. Properly by just one person. It, It was an absolute team effort. We all brought certain strengths to the table. And between the three of us, because we were always on the side of truth and telling the complete story, we didn't know what we were going to find out when we interviewed people. We had no idea. We were scared sometimes because we didn't want to hear bad things. But we 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 moved forward and each time we interviewed someone we got we gained trust we gained trust from the people from Bob's life we proved ourselves as having the proper credentials to do this and the big part was we learned who he was then as a complete and total person so it truly was a a group effort from the three of us with the support that we earned from Bob's family and his friends and his coworkers, uh, it wouldn't have happened otherwise.
2: And so many people, Carol, that would say to us, wouldn't they, and we do tell people this often, Steve, is that the more we spoke to people and the more they came to trust us, which was quite humbling and, and quite, uh, we feel quite privileged that these people who were very reluctant to speak for so long, because what, Some listeners may not know, is we spoke to more than 200 people to do this book. Um, And some of them we became very close to. um, And some of them, you know, came and went, and that was fine. But everyone had something to say. And they came and said, you know, we're in this with you. And thank you so much for doing this. And I'm going to tell everybody that they need to speak with you. And they started bringing people to us. And the more people that, we spoke to the more people became involved. And so as Carol said, yes, it was the three of us, but I almost feel like it was the two hundred and twenty of us or some odd that actually said, We're gonna make this right. And by right, we don't necessarily mean turn Bob into a saint. I think they'll I don't think anybody will say that Bob was a saint. But what they will say was that he was a whole human being. And those two hundred people plus Carol and Dee and I have had the chance to be able to show people all of him, not just that one slice.
1: Oh, I, I agree because I'm, I think I'm the typical Bob Crane fan, you know, that's out there, you know, we're going in, before I read the book and everything, before I talked to Carol and heard her presentation, you know, so back in, prior to that in 2015, I was the person that knew him for Hogan's Heroes. I mean, come on, you know, it's just Colonel Hogan. To me, he was just the cool guy. I mean, he was just, I mean, it was Hakim, Captain Kirk. There are certain people you just gravitated to as a young guy, you know, growing up, watching them in reruns all the time. And it was just the way he handled it. I mean, we'll get to Hogan's Heroes later, but the concept and how that would probably never fly in in, in a million years nowadays today, (laughs) but back then it worked. And I learned from the book and from her and from you, in hindsight, with the book, he was a drummer. He was a radio disc jockey. I mean, I didn't know all that stuff. I knew he was in some other movies because I'd seen him in some other movies and things like that. But then I learned also about the Donna Reed show and all these other things. And it's just amazing how he, he, a lot of people only think of this and probably listeners that are coming into this episode are focused on, hey, I know him, Colonel Hogan, I'm clicking on it. I want to learn you know, and, and hear about that. But now you're going to learn... He was not a one-trick pony.
2: (laughs) Yes.
0: And, you know, we... He's known as Colonel Hogan. But it seems in the public opinion, he is known for three things. He is known for not just Colonel Hogan. He is known for his murder. And he is known for the scandal, the sex scandal that erupted after... He had, his body had been found, and so it's it's Hogan murder sex, uh, and those are the three things. And it's it's a very limited um, uh, view, but that seems to be all people realize of Bob Crane. That's all they 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 know. It's all that they are are fed usually uh, about him. And that there is
1: so much more to him, as you know, Steve. And and listeners, you're about to find out some of that more more of that. So, um, I don't know which one of you wants to start first, but give it give us his um, upbringing and and what led him into the um, arts.
0: So, Bob was born in Waterbury, Connecticut, uh, July 13th, Friday the 13th, in 1928, and he uh, grew up. Even though he was born in Waterbury, he grew up in Stamford, Connecticut. While in high school, he was um, he was their drummer boy. He played in marching band. He had his own jazz band. They played gigs for the, you know, around town and neighboring towns in Norfolk uh, or not Norfolk, Norwalk, Connecticut and Danbury. We're um, not Danbury. Um, he, he played in number and hang on my cat. Sorry. You can cut that out. <laughs> he played in neighboring towns from Stamford, Connecticut. Um, and really wanted to be a drummer. His whole life at that point. Um, he learned drumming by going to the 1939 World Fair and watching Gene Krupa play. And that was where he just was, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Uh, fast forward to what he graduates in 1946. Uh, the war is over. Big bands are on their way out. There's no real place for big band music anymore the way it had been during the early 40s through 1945. And so he's relegated, what he considers relegated, to working as the world's most miserable watch repairman at a little jewelry store in Stanford. And he's not making bad money for being post-war and, you know, his parents grew up in the Depression. And so it wasn't a bad, bad job, but it wasn't what he wanted to do. And so he starts putting out feelers for radio because in his mind, and rightfully so, it's where he's going to be able to stay close to music. And he is not looking at staying at the jewelry store forever. He They offered it to him when, when the owner was going to retire. They The owner said, hey, I want to give the store to you. And Bob didn't want it. And his dad was really angry because why are you going to give up this opportunity? You're talking about his parents going through the Depression. This would have been, I think, any parents, dream to have their kid be handed gifted uh their own business and he didn't want it and so eventually he gets the call from wlea in 1950 to go up to hornell new york and he is um he, he he's not supported by his dad in that decision his mom does support him but he he goes and he um, he heads up to WLEA, and I'll let Linda tell that story because she likes that story a whole lot, and it was, it was That was one of her stories, so I'll let her her roll with that one.
2: <laughs> that is one of my favorite stories, actually. Um, Bob's cousin Jim told us this uh, this story very early on, and it, it's really a. Um, I'll, I'll just say before um, I tell that little tale that um, what Carol said uh, about Bob not wanting to be. Uh, a watch, you know, in the in the jewelry store, watch business forever, and turning down something that would appear to have been a, a certain smart thing um, is a pattern, Became a pattern for him. He knew what he wanted, and he but even more than that, he knew what he didn't want. And if he didn't want it, and he didn't think it would suit him, he wouldn't do it. Um, and so here we get this call from WLEA in Hornell, and he says, "I've got to go down to do this." Uh, and he's he's very excited, and he's a, a you know a young married man, and he's, he's he, I mean he'd been looking into radio on his honeymoon in the Poconos. He was out doing radio you know interviews and not getting anywhere. So this was something he'd wanted to do for a long time. So the call comes in from Hornell, and he says, "Gotta go." He heads down there in his car. Of course, they're young and they they're not wealthy, and he's got this old jalopy, and the thing breaks down midway. Uh, to the radio station and he says i have to make this interview i don't know how i'm going to get there and what he does is he hitches a lift on a hay wagon so here he is riding along and his his cousin jim said just picture him he told the story that you know he arrived at the radio station and he's got hay sticking out of his suit and he probably smells a bit like manure and he's ready to go but he's not giving up on this opportunity and he wants to be in this radio station so much that he sits down and he talks to the fella and he says you know here I am and here's what I do and I'm ready to when and the fella says great you've got the job and he says wonderful when do I go on the air and he says what are you on the air we're hiring maintenance guy you can start tomorrow morning I'll get your broom." Um, and Bob could have turned around at that moment and said, no, this isn't what I want, but he didn't. He took the maintenance job, and he very quickly ended up on the air anyway, Um, and as Bob said in an an interview later on in his life, much of his radio career um, was actually created by these serendipitous kinds of of things that – he could have just said, this isn't happening, I'm not going to do it, um, but he did, and or, or things that he had no control over. He got a job once because, you know, he was willing to push a broom. He got a radio job once because he didn't drink, so he'd show up on time. He got a radio job once because when they ran the tape that he had sent in, as we do, you know, you... Sending air checks, and in those days, of course, it would have been reel to reels. And I remember sending my air check on cassette around to places or whatnot. It ran slowly, so Bob had this smooth, very wide, low voice. And of course, Bob Crane for real could talk really fast and talk way over here and get and when he got there, they went holy moly, and said, "Well, you know what? Yeah, have the job anyway, but slow down a little if you can slow down." So he, you know, he had these opportunities to have these jobs. Um, partly because of things that had nothing to do with his talent. But he used those opportunities to really um, hone his craft and become what really, in the true sense, was a genius in radio, starting with sitting on a hay wagon, heading off to a station that didn't really want him for what he thought they did.
1: And I think for a lot of people that are in the um, arts, because I've talked to a lot of different actors and actresses and directors and all that stuff. They'll get their start, and you can say it's serendipity, you can say it's luck, but it's also being in the right place at the right time and taking advantage of the opportunity that's there. The door's open to crack, and you're like, okay, I, it's a crack, I can start making that crack a little bigger if I start doing this and that. And, and that's the drive that he had. And uh, you know, a lot of people that are very successful in the business have that drive. And it's very hard because it's, as you know, like we're trying to get the interviews for the the book, you know, sometimes you have to, um, it it takes, it it could take a year or two or more to get the person where they feel comfortable with saying, Hey, I'll let you interview me because they hear you interviewing people around them and then they're hearing word back. Mm -hmm. And it's that reputation you develop because really it's your name is everything. And if you come out coming coming off poorly, it spreads quickly in small little circles, especially when you're talking about the circle like the friends and family of Bob Crane. But I mean, even in the film industry or book industry or whatever industry, once that once your net reputation is shot, it's that's it. And it and it's so it's amazing how you guys like Bob Crane were able to use that drive to get that through. Well, I'll tell you what,
2: Steve, I I when I first said Gee, this isn't fair. I want to do something. Um, I had no idea that a certain purported biopic film had been made and released about that time. I had no idea that that film was out there. I don't think it ran down here. And if it did, it certainly didn't run very long. It's a bad film, and it didn't last, thank God. Um, but what that film did was create huge barriers for us people did not want to speak um i actually went to knx radio in los angeles in 2004 when i went back into the states for a bit and i went to the radio station and they almost threw me out um we don't talk about bob crane we don't we don't deal with it we don't know anything about bob crane. I said he worked here and was your number one guy for several years. We don't talk about Bob Crane here. You can leave now. And I finally got one person that came downstairs to talk to me for a bit. And thankfully that changed. And we ended up with a lot of people from KNX who spoke very um, Mm -hmm. in depth and kindly and honestly with us about Bob, but you know, the barriers it put up way back then were extraordinary and scared the heck out of loads of people. Uh, people like Bob Clary, who worked with, with Bob on Hogan Heroes, it took us five years to get him to give us a single two- or three-page letter because he didn't want to speak to us, had sworn he'd never speak to anyone, and eventually trusted us just enough to put something in writing and give us that. But years and years of people closing doors uh, because damage had been done. And let
0: me follow that up with yeah you know, i think it's important for people to realize that that movie was not even intended to be Bob's true story the director of that film and we all know what we're talking about it's Autofocus uh, in a New York Times article dated September 29th 2002 Paul Schrader who directed Autofocus was quoted and he says it's his Norman Rockwell moment, and he's joking around. And he says, you know, Carpenter, and he's talking about John Carpenter, who is the man that was, uh, he was always the number one suspect in Bob's murder. He was tried, he was acquitted, but he was always, and to this day, is the person that the police believe murdered Bob. And people think that John Carpenter is was Bob Crane's best friend like like that was his one and only best friend this is who Bob this this is his best friend and that's the way it is and that's not true at all um and so Schrader admits this more or less in this New York Times article and he says you know Carpenter was not as important in Crane's life as he is in the film it is a distortion and then he goes on to say my intent with autofocus is not to be true or definitive. People's actual lives are not really that interesting. And with Crane, I wanted to get it something meaty. Otherwise, who cares? Would you want to watch a movie about Alan Hale? And I, I wish that those quotes could, be, could preface the movie so that everybody who watches it realizes that this movie While there are bits of truth in it, whereas, yes, Bob worked on Hogan's Heroes, and yes, he was in radio, and yes, he did have uh, a sexual addiction, Um, but there is so much that this movie just bends and twists and and distorts, and, and people come out of that movie thinking that Bob Crane is the worst human being that ever lived and has, you know, had horns growing up out of his head because he was the devil incarnate, and it's not true. It's not true. Uh, so yeah, that movie made things very difficult. We worked very, very hard to earn people's trust. Like I had said earlier, earning their trust was a big part of this. Uh, in the Hollywood industry, Arlene Martell, who um, gosh, she she was well, she was on oh. Hogan's Heroes as a Tiger, but she was really—I mean, she's a she was on you know, obviously Star Trek. She she's been in the Monkeys, tons and tons and tons of things. Um, But she was really the first one that took that first step and said, you know, in the Hollywood circuit and said, Okay, but I need a I need a contract. And I remember being up at four in the morning taking one of my my contracts from work (laughs) and kind of like making it work. (laughs) Um
2: so like like, it was just
0: basically an agreement to be interviewed and 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 a lot of the folks from Hollywood signed it, and they and what we did was we we allowed them to review the portions of the book where they were quoted, because they had been burned so badly in the industry that by allowing them that chance to review those quotes, review their pages, not the whole book, just their their sections. Uh, Hogan's Heroes director wrote back to me after I sent him a copy of the book. He read it cover to cover, and he said. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me. He just thought it was just such, it was such a beautifully written book. And he really appreciated the opportunity to review his quotes because that never happens. And that's why, you know, the mis- the, the misquotes happen all the time and people don't want to trust and people don't want to, you know, put their neck out um, because they get burned. And so we were up against a whole lot with that.
2: We recorded every interview we did, and the hours upon countless hours of transcription um, were just mind-boggling or mind-numbing sometimes. Um, And it was really important that if somebody said something that we weren't sure exactly what they meant, we would go back to them. I remember doing this with Stuart Moss. Do you not remember? <laughs> what do you mean? Oh clarify. Please, <laughs> please elaborate. Please, you know, please tell me more. Um, you know, please explain. We want to understand this. Um, and a good journalist will do that. I mean, I did that on an article I wrote about um President Biden's stuttering. I um, you know, I need to understand exactly what this means. You know, please go back and explain this to me um and those people that did that as carol said they just they were so grateful to be given the opportunity to i mean they really were sticking their neck out by speaking with people who'd never published a book before you know yes i had a journalistic background yes carol worked in publishing yes she was in radio but they didn't know us from a hole in the wall all they knew was, this is what we said we wanted to do. And gosh, hadn't they been burned a thousand times before in the worst ways possible, in ways that hurt them because they ended up inadvertently and unwillingly hurting someone that they loved or cared about. And here's these two or three girls going, hey, it's okay, talk to me. And and they would just go, "Ah, oh, I'm not sure about this. And yet they did. But because we gave them that opportunity, they were more than open with us um, and would say to people, go talk to Linda and Carol, go, go talk to Carol and Linda. go, go talk to Carol and Linda. please go, to, you know, I know who wants to talk to you. I know who can tell you about these things. And it really, for us, just gave us, it allowed us to present that whole picture.
1: Exactly. And um, I, I know what it's like, because when I call people up or contact them, to do interviews. They don't know me from anybody, you know, and that kind of stuff. And it's just, you know, you go through, and then I always tell them, like, if they say something that they want to take away later on, just let me know and I'll edit it out, you know, because it's no sense in being, you know, hurtful or whatever. Because sometimes we've all misspoke at the spur of the moment. And I know some people out there, like, finally we got the gotcha moment and they'll run with it to get their clicks and hits and all the other stuff. But yeah, but then you're just, to me, you're just a, a person that goes for the, the slime, and I tried to avoid all that, and uh, I mean, it's just, it's just not worth it, it's just, you know, I'd, I'd rather have, because once you have these people recorded, this might be the last time, you know, for some of them you ever get to hear, and that kind of stuff, about what's going on, and what's happening, and, uh, uh you know, in this way, it's recorded forever. The people know, just like you guys did. You're able to have hours, you have hundreds of hours of stuff you never used in the book, but it's there, and it's always going to be saved. And, you know, maybe one day, you know, um, you'll, you'll put it somewhere where people can archive it and look at it later on as you pass the torch to the next generation of people. But Bob didn't stay in Massachusetts as a DJ. He made the big move. To the other side of the world, the other side the of move. the world, other side of the country.
2: <laughs> well, some people so would say make it's make another world. world. <laughs> he was, he was in New York and then Connecticut and made the big move because he was killing them around. He was killing everyone around him. Um, and people who understand radio know certainly in today's market, you know, where there are so many stations on the dial, um, but if you have, say, a 10 or 12% market share, you're doing really well. Well, at WICC um, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Bob had a 65% market share. 65. And that touched the New York market, just the edge of the New York market, which, and he wanted to be in New York. New and York the City. Boston yeah. market, you know, and the Boston market was, was – dying because here's this little nobody in connecticut and what he did in connecticut was extraordinary and carol and i have some amazing um connecticut radio stories but that's where he learned what what to do and how to do in these smaller stations where he could learn uh all these different techniques and things um that would really make his show stand out and boy did it and Boston called up, He's, you got to get him out of here. He's killing us. He's killing us. So they called and said, hey, why don't you come over to WEEI Boston? Or why don't you, know, no, no, I don't want to. Again, knowing what he wants and knowing what he doesn't want. He didn't want to go to Boston. He wanted to go to New York. They said, well, cool. We got to get him out of here. If he doesn't want to go to Boston, where are we going to take him? let's take him out to California. You don't get much farther away from Boston than California. Let's take him to California. Ralph's story is going off to do the $64,000 question. Let's get Bob Crane. Uh, and they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Big negotiations and off he went and started there. And then of course, the rest is history. Now, and I... how he got, oh, sorry. I was say, I sorry. almost
1: jumped the gun. When, when I said California, I almost forgot. And you alluded to it. What are some of those inventive things that he started at that? Cause I mean, he, he came up with stuff that was so, yeah. cutting edge, which he nowadays did. we all yeah. take for granted. Yeah, he <laughs>
2: sure did. Well, yeah. He'll know what fired, but he did. <laughs> <laughs> so he
0: would experiment with, first of all, when he got up to WLEA, I mean, I, Bob would listen to radio all the time. Um, and he was always gleaning, um, things that he thought would work in radio. He would, he would keep the things that he thought would work. He would ditch the rest. Even if, uh, a radio personality or DJ had one thing and everything else was crap, he would keep that one thing. And he kind of like added it to his little box, added it to his little box. So when he gets finally into radio, he gets on the air at WLEA, he starts doing, um, sound effects and Uh, even today, this would be a huge no, no, but he starts what he calls either messing with or enhancing the commercials. And so he is one of the earliest ones that he, he did was uh, for Borden's milk up in Hornell. And he had a little glass of water and a little salt shaker filled with water. And he would, um, you know, be reading the copy for the ad. And he would say, Oh, well, you know, gordon's milk the milk is so fresh we're milking the cow right here in the studio and he would take the salt shaker and he would dribble some water into the glass of water to make it sound like you know we're milking the cow. Like said and then he would say well the milk is so fresh well the eggs are fresh too and then he would play a clip from a rate from a record of a chicken just going you know you know little chicken sound and it he just kind of enhanced these ads and in the beginning he got some positive feedback. So he continued to do that. And then he thought, well, if I can do sound effects, why not voices? And so he started doing voice impersonations. And I, you know, he, K and X referred to him as K and X's man of a thousand voices. That title kind of gets thrown around. Of course, Mel Blanc is the man of a thousand voices and, you know, people can argue that, well, you can't say that about Bob Crane because it's that. So it's, it was, Kind of a title that KNX gave him in the station, uh, but he had all of these voices that he would pre-record, and then he would interact with them, and and it, it was, you know, it was like a, its own theatrical show. Uh, when he when he's in Bridgeport at WICC, he's continuing to enhance the commercials. He's continuing to mess with the ads, um, but he he gets <laughs> he learns a very uh, big lesson at one point because he is advertising for uh, a hoagie shop and up in Connecticut Linda they call them grinders and in Massachusetts grinders, they're grinders. heroes, <laughs> heroes. heroes. Uh, we call them hoagies here in Philly <laughs> but submarines you know but there's a grinder shop in in the Bridgeport area and they have bought airtime on WICC and He goes to read the copy and he's saying, you know, go down to, you know, Joe's grinder shop and, you know, they have specialty sandwiches. And what's in the specialty sandwiches? Well, it's ham and cheese and lettuce and rocks and sticks and gravel and dirt. And, you know, and he starts listing all of these bizarre things that you would hopefully never find in a sandwich. And the shop owner hears this and is livid, infuriated, calls the station manager, says, that's it, get them off. He's ruining my business. You know, this is not what I paid for. You know, get him off the air. Uh, So he gets called down and he's like, he gets chewed out. You know, you can't do that. Not something that, you know, you can be doing or allowed to do. But then an interesting thing happened. Lunchtime comes around and there's a line out the door, down the block, around the corner, because everybody had heard that ad. And it was funny. But they wanted to see what this specialty sandwich was all about. Were they really putting rocks and gravel in there, you know? And so while it worked out to his favor, because then, of course, the shop owner called back and said, cancel that. No, no, no. I've never been busier. Um, It also taught him to be a little bit more careful with how he enhanced or messed with these commercials, because this is somebody's livelihood you know, this is somebody's life, this is their paycheck, Come, you know, if they're buying airtime, if you're going to mess with the ads, you need to be able to, um, you know, still have it have a positive spin on it and not be a negative spin. And so he this is really what gets him all of the um, the, the market, share, all of the attention, so that he is then lured out to California to KNX CBS radio, this is this is who they are trying to bring out to LA. Um, replacing Ralph Story was going to be a big trick because Ralph Story had a very mellow, you know, sounding voice, and he had like a like a history story hour where he would, you know, kind of, you know, just t- t- very, you know, lullingly <laughs> tell people, you know, these stories. Whereas Bob comes in and it's like shattering glass and. You know, it's it's like the alarm clock going off, and people weren't really sure what to make of him for the first year. But then, after he got really going, then then it worked out.
1: And and that's the thing I love about this learning about Bob Crane with that because I never knew how much he was tweaking the system, so to speak. And again, nowadays when I when I grew up listening to radio, you would hear people do that with certain commercials, and people would pay extra. Oh, I want the DJ to augment or do whatever, you know, to, yes. you know, and now, and now it's the norm, you know, for, and people know it could have a pro con type of thing where they might not sound good, but people remember the name of the place. Yes. And they want to go, right. they want to go there. That's that's right. That's absolutely right.
2: And by the time he got, well, when he was in California, uh, working at, at uh, pay and people would have to pay extra for Bob to do that. It became a premium item uh, for Bob to to mess with the ads, or what he called mess with the ads, um, by adding coughing sounds to cigarette ads and his mother's laughter and and voices to some of the other ads, and you know just forever playing around with all with with the advertising and with the product. Um, if you wanted Bob Crane to do that, you were going to pay, he and they all wanted it. They all made so
0: much money for K and X, so much money. And Linda, when you were going there for the first time and they said, Oh, I don't want to talk about Bob, Bob Craig. No, we, we don't you know, he, he really, not that K and X wasn't, I mean, it was K and X, CBS radio. It was, you know, 1939. It's It's all of golden Hollywood. It's, it's, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and you know, all of the that that era. But during Bob's era, between his the way he ran his show with the commercials, but then also the celebrity interview component, which came on in the early 60s, around 1960, 61, through until when he leaves in 1965 to go do Hogan's Heroes. Uh, he, you know, he had he had made so much money for that station in the nine years that he was there that when at the time when when Linda goes to them and says, so I want to ask people about Bob Crane and they just put up the barriers and say we don't even talk about Bob Crane. He just like you know strike his oh, name awful. from every document. It and, was, you know it was awful. You know it felt,
2: like, it felt awful. Yeah, there was, was there was and and I might have been. Um, were feeling some of this the wrong way but it's like they were afraid to talk about him uh, again it was very shortly after um autofocus had come out and of course KNX. The, the way that film portrayed bob he was awful everywhere all the time and so they were probably um quite fearful that somebody was trying to do some expose uh, or that it would affect them and K and X was still CBS at that time, and they just were like, "No, well, we don't do Bob Crane here. You know, we don't talk about Bob Crane." I mean, it was—I couldn't get into the parking lot, and that's not an exaggeration. That was a—they weren't letting me pass that parking lot. And eventually, someone let me in the building. I remember one of my friends, Marty Breedlove, who um, was with me in California at the time. She and I just stood out there. For a good hour or a second, oh, we're just getting in the damn building. Somebody's gonna let us in the building, you know, and and to have um, someone who brought that station so much attention and so much fame and so much money, um, just shunned in the way that he was, it was stunning. It was it just it really was there there were really no words for how we felt when we left that day um so that when we finally did get the knx people who would speak to us um really telling whole stories uh it was very rewarding to know that yeah somebody you know there was a story there that deserved to be told they used to bring in advertisers to watch bob work on air uh, because he was so astounding to what he moved so fast it was like watching a uh, it was like watching a TV show just to watch that him perform. And for somebody to watch a radio person, uh, you know, nobody watches radio. I mean, it's not what it's about. But in those days, to watch Bob, you know, grab a record and within seconds put a sound effect on and, you know, all that um, silent conversation that you have with an engineer, because in those days an engineer was supposed to do that work. On the, you know, you Bob managed to um, negotiate so that he could handle some of his own things. One person couldn't handle his show unless it was him. So having someone else handle everything he did uh, wasn't going to work. And so he just really brought KNX everything. He wasn't the number one rated show, but gee, he was known. And he was loved happily. The program
0: director, the current program director there now, has uh, taken a very active uh, interest in the history of KNX, and that includes Bob Crane, and he is very supportive of our book and of our efforts to see Bob Crane inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame, to which he has not yet been inducted, again, because of that certain film, and it overshadows everything. Uh, but Bob's work in radio, Linda, you, you know we said this on our uh, event, our virtual event from a from last weekend. Um, but so many in radio have have said this. If ever the term genius was used appropriately, it was describing Bob Crane in radio. He was, by all accounts, who knew him in radio, watched him in radio, worked with him in radio. He was
1: a radio genius. Mm-hmm. So, so far, listeners, we got we know excellent drummer, and we know we know that if anybody wants to look it up, I know you're going to bring it up probably later that he was also shown his drumming on I think it was the Johnny Carson show, if I remember correct, right?
0: Uh, several different shows, actually. Uh, we don't have any actual footage of him drumming on Johnny Carson's on, on the Tonight Show, uh, even though. I'm- I don't know if he actually did because Johnny Carson was a drummer as well, and there was, a, I think, a little bit of. Well, um, oh, there was a story uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> there was a bit of a, of a rivalry there, but but he did drum on lots of different variety shows. Um, you, usually, any show that he went on, he it was kind of a prerequisite. He would say, "Can I can I drum?" And they would usually say, "Yes, yes, sure, sure." So so we have a lot of that up on on uh, our YouTube channel. Vote for Bob Crane on YouTube. Yeah, so, um, so, and, yeah.
2: and played drums on the Hogan Heroes theme song, and cut an album, yes. playing drums with mm-hmm. with other uh, with other orchestra members, and, and, and because uh, he new Phillips,
0: and because he was interviewing so many celebrities at KNX. A lot of those people that he was interviewing turned out to be the leaders of the big bands that he idolized as a kid. And so you're talking Gene Krupa and you're talking Artie Shaw and, you know, all of the Stan Kenton, you know, all of these, uh, you know, his, 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 you know, he just idolized these people as a kid. Now he's interviewing them. And so what ends up happening is after he becomes very famous on Hogan's Heroes and he starts going around the country doing dinner theater and he's in all these different cities and the Stan Kenton Orchestra is in Cleveland, Ohio, you know, they say, oh, yeah, Bob Crane, come on up and play, play the, you know, Street of Pearls with us or whatever. And he just jumps right up with the chance. And, you know, and uh, because he recorded everything, which we can get into later um he was recording every single aspect of his life uh a lot of those um segments that he was playing live with these big bands were preserved um and it's really really cool to hear Stan Kenton say Bob Crane come on up or you know um
2: because that and dream really, come true yeah dream come, come true he was a kid he stayed again yeah. for his whole life oh my gosh I yeah um, you know, when you're a kid and you have something that you absolutely love and it carries with you through your life, then you are going to be that kid when that opportunity arises. And Bob really was that youthful, that that um, optimistic, that passionate, um, that compassionate um, person. And given the opportunity to do, you know, to have his little kid dreams come true, I mean, What kids do? I mean, heck, a couple of years ago, I got to ride around the monkey mobile and I was a monkey fan from forever when I was a kid. And you can't get the grin off my face if you look at the photos of me in that dang car. Um, (laughs) Because when you're a kid and you love something and 30 years later it happens, then it's still going to happen. You know, you're still going to smile. And Bob never forgot how to have that feeling. Um, so getting to play drums with, you know, Stan Kenton and, and having a drum battle on air with Gene and you know, these were his dreams and he did everything he could to make them happen.
1: And I, I can totally understand where he's coming from and where you're coming from, because I'm getting I'm, a lot of people I interview are people I want to know more about. And I grew up watching and it's just kind of cool when you get to have that, in a sense, a private conversation with them that you share with. Whoever wants to else listen to it, you know, that kind of thing. But I had I had a similar experience just recently to your Monkey Mobile. And Carol can attest, she saw this on Facebook recently. I, I, I was a big fan of Land of the Lost, and I got to go in the raft with them and go down the um, waterfall, down with them, so to speak. Oh. It's not really the waterfall, but, you know, it's the, it was a photo. But it was just great yeah, meeting people yeah. you grew up with, and you're having fun. <laughs> I love-
0: that photo of you because you have the photo on the one side and then you got, uh you know, the, the little video on the next, and you just look like you are having a blast. I was like, oh, I love this. my
2: son <laughs> well, I... Scott took me to the Batcave from the 60s TV series, and I, I mean, I'm in the back cave and you know and you go to the back cave and you go, it's a it's a three foot high tunnel. What the how did the car? Get out of here. You know, and of course the magic of television. But you walk through the thing and you get to the other side and you look up and go, Bonanza? Star Trek. Oh my God, where am I? <laughs> you know, all your all your childhood comes comes true all at all at once. You know, and you don't forget those things.
1: You don't, don't forget but those things. I think, I think I, you and I, I know exactly the smile you had though, when you were in the, you know, there's, there's different things because Carol can attest. I probably had that same smile and, and she knows what it's like <laughs> when she goes to places place like the mid Atlantic, where you get to meet people, you um, grew up watching and talk with them. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's just one of those cool experiences. It is such
0: a cool experience. And, and, yeah, the Mid Atlantic Nostalgia Convention provides such a. Uh, this is the plug for for Mid Atlantic for, <laughs> but what but it, it, is, it provides beautiful. it provides. You know, it's so it's very laid back. It's not like some of the bigger cons that people will go to, like Comic Con or whatever. It's very laid back. Uh, the celebrities that Martin Graham gets for uh, the show every year are yeah, they're they're A-listers. They're A-listers. And, you know, meeting Loretta Swift, um, Ed Bagley Jr. Uh, was that one. And, and I talked with him for a little bit. We talked with him briefly. Um, uh, you know, I re- and what I remember is some of these folks knew Bob. And so when I, when I go and I see folks that we either interviewed or that I know knew Bob, uh, I'll give them a copy of the book. And to stand out, and I'll, I'll tell this really quickly. Uh, Ed Begley Jr. was one, and he had given us just a, a very. Um, uh, he had worked briefly with Bob, um, but I gave him a copy of, of the book, and he sat there and he held it in his hand, and he just he patted it like it was it was just like a, a precious thing, and and he said, "This, this is good work," and you know. And then the other person was Dawn Wells. Um, Dawn uh, didn't work with Bob, but of course, being in the industry, they they of course knew each other. And after Bob had been murdered, I remembered reading that she had been uh, very uh, outspoken about the protection of actors when they travel around the country to doing in doing theater dinner theater. Because, at t- I mean, we still don't know who killed Bob, but there was this concern early on that it could have been an obsessed fan who had murdered Bob. And where was the protection uh, of the celebrities? Because, you know, let's face it, there really wasn't any. It was, you know, they were just coming out and they were doing a run and, and moving on to the next. Um, and so she had been outspoken asked shortly after the murder that there should be more um, security surrounding actors Uh, well-known actors when they travel for dinner theater. So when she was at Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention um, the one year, and sadly she passed away from COVID in 2020, Um, but I gave her a copy of the book as well, and we had been talking. And she just, she held it, and she held it like up close to her chest, and she just hugged the book. And she just said, her assistant was sitting right there, And she said, I loved him so much. He was such a good person. And she handed the book over to her assistant. And she said, you take good care of this. You make sure that this does not get lost. This is very important. (laughs) And, you know, and, you know, I wasn't, you know, when I, when I talk with them, I'm not, you know, saying, hey, you know, you know, sign my this or whatever i'm just saying here's the copy of the book here's this here's what i you know thank you for talking with us or, or whatever and um you know it, it just it, it's just really 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 neat to see these people it's neat when there is that connection with bob uh and they have such you know warm memories of him and then they appreciate the, the next thing is that they see what we've done and they appreciate what we've done and they recognize it
1: Exactly. And so so he, he goes to California. I almost feel like this is like the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, you, you know, like he, he got the gold. He goes to, goes to California. Beverly Hills where he's supposed to he's be. in
0: the hay wagon, maybe. <laughs> yeah, the hay wagons. It's,
1: it's, you know, but um, he gets there and eventually he starts to show up on TV. So how how did that all come about? How did he start? You know, because sure. obviously he had those connections of interviewing different people, and people knew his radio persona, and he moved up to the next level. I, I mean, I don't know if it's a next level or a different field, so to speak.
0: Bob was always looking for that next thing. He he want he always was as as we talked about earlier in this. Uh, podcast he and we certainly cover it in the book he was driven he was driven 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 so you know he's in radio he's he's always going to push that envelope a little bit more a little bit more and so when he gets out to Hollywood of course the first thing he thinks is huh, I'm going to be an actor but KNX says oh no you're not and they put an acting a no acting clause inside his contract that he cannot act for five years um he he was telling in an interview with Del Moore that he thought it was a stupid, and that's how he says it, stupid. It was a stupid clause. <laughs> and he he is not allowed to act professionally. But what he does is he does a little bit of community theater. He does a little pilot for uh, a show called Picture Window that never got produced. So he's getting his feelers out. Uh, he's also doing a couple of uh, movies where he just has little bit parts, um, once the the no asking uh, clause is lifted, he does Mantrap in 1961. He does Return to Peyton Place in 1961. Uh, he has a bit part in The New Interns in 1964. Uh, and so, a lot of this is coming from his connections of interviewing with the the celebrities on his KNX show. Um, but really, his big break. And Linda, I'll let you you take this uh, from here. But his big break is uh, with The Dick Van Dyke Show. And then that leads to Donna Reed.
2: Yes, he he ended up on The Dick Van Dyke Show in a one-shot uh, called Somebody Has to Play Cleopatra. Um, it is considered one of their, at least one of their top 20 episodes. And of course, The Dick Van Dyke Show is just so beloved. Um, and he plays, and, and probably coming as no surprise to anyone, Bob does play drums on that episode. It's just a, a, like a bongo drum, but he's, he's playing drums um, because Laura is singing and, and dancing, and the neighborhood is putting on a, a show, and so everyone gets together, and Bob plays one of the neighborhood husbands uh, who comes, and they decide they're going to run... A piece of uh, you know Antony and Cleopatra, and he plays Mark Antony, and somebody has to play Cleopatra. And at first, it's Dick Van Dyke's wife, um, and he doesn't. uh, But 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 Rob, oh Rob, Rob doesn't like um, how close he is and how affectionate he is and he's very charming and she says we're just acting we're just acting and he says no no it's fine it's fine and he says well she's not going to do this and then somebody else ends up doing it and somebody else ends up doing it and he he plays he plays his part so eagerly and his character is so ridiculous and he his line is supposed to be ah Cleopatra my enchanted at last i have arrived from rome and he cannot get this line right, and he constantly says, "At last, I have aroamed from Rives. And it keeps getting stopped and stopped and stopped. And eventually, his wife comes in, and she knows what this husband's all about. He says, "It was just acting." It was, and they have this huge fight outside, and they're screaming and yelling at each other. And just as a Just in one of the best comic timing bits that that Bob had, which was quite natural for him, but not without learning, he came, he comes back in after all the screaming outside and just as one of the kids is sick and he leaves. And his appearance on that show as that character gets the attention of Donna Reed was already a fan of Bob she and her husband Tony were both fans of, of Bob and she'd been on his radio show and they said we we need him. and so we went and did a guest spot on the Donna Reed show and eventually got asked to come back as a supporting character. Uh, and then after a period of time, contrary to what rumors are around as usual, Um, He did not get fired from the Donna Reed show. He left the Donna Reed show uh, because it was, you know, husband, wife, happy families, same old, same old, father knows best, leave it to beaver, you know, all the same, same, same. And he wanted something different. So eventually he left. um, But the Dick Van Dyke show really opened up that first big door for him in a role. I mean, that show was extremely popular, got him widely noticed for his acting um, and led on to bigger and better things. He was offered other shows. He was offered, you know, My Mother the Car, Please Don't Eat the Daisies. Again, Bob saying, I know what I don't want. This is what I don't want. He was offered various roles to the MC and host and whatnot. That's more like radio with visual. And again, he didn't want that. As he said, you know, I want to get into the acting thing. I want to get into the acting thing. And. In an audio letter to his cousin, Jim, he actually bemoans the fact that he's having such a hard time because everybody wants, and this was before Hogan's Heroes, um, you know, everybody sees him as a host. And what he really wanted to do was be an actor in the, along the, in the genre of uh, Jack Lemon, Gig Young, Tony Randall. And he was watching them get parts that he said, I can do that. I can do that. And eventually he just hit the right sweet spot Here's something different. Here's
1: Hogan's heroes. And I guess you can say the rest is history if we're gonna get into it, but it's just when you when, for listeners that have never seen the show, and, and you should see it, if you look at the premise of the show, it's it's like people would be like, What? You know, POW camp, it's gonna be a comedy, it's gonna be set during World War II. you you're you're gonna have basically um a little bit of everything from every country that was participating in, PO, in the POW side. And I mean, it's not often you get a show with Nazis in World War II and you're going to say it's a comedy. It sounds like something from the producers, <laughs> you know, within, but, it, <laughs> but it just takes off, <laughs> and we're all talking about today, and uh, I'll, let, I'll let you ladies um, go and talk about Hogan's Heroes because this is, I think, it's one of my top ten shows growing up. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things you can watch over and over and just, you see an episode on TV, you know, for, for 25 minutes, a half hour, you know, if you take the commercials at like 25 minutes, you're just going to be entertained Mm -hmm. and happy.
0: Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, so when Bob decides he does not want to do Donna Reed show anymore, he, um, immediately as Linda had just said, he was being offered all kinds of, um, shows which he turned down. Uh, But then he was told about this um, World War II comedy. And even he was a bit put off by it. Like, what do you mean, Nazis comedy? I mean, going back to when Bob was a kid, he had his brother who served in World War II, was badly injured in World War II. He had cousins and friends who served in World War II. So Bob was very supportive of our military, He was very supportive of our veterans. He was very supportive of our former POWs. Um, He was very concerned that this could be offensive. He was intrigued by the plot. He was interested in it. Um, So he talked to um, the producers. He talked to Edward Feldman. He talked to Bernard Fine. He talked to, um, you know, he, he talked with them and said, okay, it sounds like something I would want to do. So he he did, agreed to go ahead and do the pilot. Now, I learned that it was the pilot episode that they sent out. It was the pilot episode without the laugh track. Bob insisted that former POWs and veterans groups in the Midwest be sent this trailer, uh, which was the pilot without the last track, so that they could screen it. Because if they felt it was in any way, um, you know, not, if it was offensive, if it was not something that, you know, they liked, um, he was out. As much as he thought that this had a lot of potential, he liked the script, it was different. It was certainly something that was on the, the, you know, on his radar for what he was looking for. But if it was going to offend them, he was not going to do it. And so he sends out, they send out the trailer, they they send it out to, you know, the groups. And the results come back and they loved it. They said, if it weren't for humor, we never would have survived. And so with that, he was all in. He was all in, he was 150% in with not just wanting the show to be good and, and being pretty much the first on set and the last to leave, uh, but he was all in for the promotional things. He They had him dressing up as Hogan everywhere and doing all of these, you know, television spots and ads and he would show up. There's a story that um, is in the book where he was, I, I don't know if he was at the airport or, or where he was, but he was somewhere um, in public before the show had come out and he was wearing the whole Hogan garb, the leather jacket, the hat, the whole bit. And that's not what our Air Force um, servicemen and women were wearing in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And they would walk by him and go, you know, is he for real? (gasps) Because it wasn't the right uniform. It wasn't the current current uniform. Um, But he was all in to make that show successful. And he... Was never. We were told by many people that he didn't hog the spotlight. He always allowed others to have their chance to shine. Um, there, you know, as far as the casting goes, um, Linda, I'll let you tell it. He, you know, he was the natural choice. He did audition, uh, but there was somebody else who auditioned for the role and did not get it, uh, which has to this day led to some controversy
2: on and on and on yes um yeah there are a few things that i i will talk about that there are a couple of things that are important to, to note here as well one and people think about world war ii now they think quite a long time ago but when that show came out the war had only been over for 20 years there was nothing funny about world war Two. to you know and but the important thing for them Um, was to remember that a lot of the people who were involved in the show had personal experiences of World War II, either through members of their family being um, in the war, such as as Bob's family was. Um, John Banner, who played Schultz, was was a soldier in World War II. Most of the Germans were actually played by Jews, and Robert Clary had been in a concentration camp. Um, So the people who were involved in the show either looked at it as this is a job or, for instance, with someone like Werner Klemperer who played um, Commandant Klink, it was, I'll do this character, but he's a fuck. He's not going to yep. win. Yep. So, there are very few. I think there's only one time where I see Klink really come out on top and it doesn't last. <laughs> um but one of the ads they used to, one of the sayings they used to use when they first advertised this show, and Bob hated this Oh, thing. he hated it. Um, hated if you liked it. World War II, you'll love Hogan's Heroes. And they go, whoa. Dan Freeberg. This yeah. is a poor yes. choice. And, oh. and the, uh, the, the other thing was when the show came out, the reviews were horrendous because people were mixing up the idea of a POW camp. With a concentration camp. And you cannot. You, you cannot can mix those not, two things up. You and, cannot. You know, someone like Robert Clary, who'd been in a concentration camp, lost almost his entire family um, because because of the, the Nazis. Um, you'll never see him with short sleeves because he's got a tattoo on his arm from the camps. Um, you know, these people were never going to do a show that glorified. Um, the, the the Nazis and anything that they they did. But the reviews were horrendous because people did not make that, uh, did not understand that difference and did not understand that connection. It brought them much closer together, I think, because they all thought, sure. felt that they were fighting that same battle. And, and Bob said in an interview once, it wasn't saying, look how bad the, the Germans weren't impressed, of course, because you know, they thought this is only perpetuating bad things about them. Um, and in the 60s, you know, the, the Germans of the 60s weren't the Nazis of the 30s and 40s. And so this isn't us. And Bob made it very clear that he said, you know, it wasn't look how bad the Germans are. It was look how clever the Allies are. And, um, and that know, might be splitting hairs, but it's not.
0: There is a difference. There is a difference. And there is a it's difference. not. if you watch the show, it's not about making... The Germans look bad. It's about making the Nazis look foolish because it's a parody. Mm. At the end of the day, it's a parody. Um, John Banner, you know, people think that his character of Schultz and you know, it's getting a little bit off of Bob, but they think his character of Schultz is stupid. You know, I know nothing, I see nothing, and but But John Banner, but John Banner did Mm. he he came out and said that his character of Schultz is actually. Like Germany during the war. You know, mm-hmm. Schultz is a big guy. And so you, you look at that as, as Germany. And when Schultz says, I know nothing, I see nothing, I hear nothing, what that really meant was the German people who just let it happen, who and, you know, and who were and, frightened and who were frightened to do anything it. Was, else. It was it was they were in a place that like you said, Linda, they were frightened so they looked the other way. If it's not happening to me, then I'm okay. I'm just going to turn and not look at it because it doesn't affect me. And yet it might be affecting my neighbors,
2: but it's not But affecting if I say me. anything it will affect me. And that, mm-hmm. that that was terrifying for yes. for many people. And um, mm-hmm. so, although, sorry, I went went off track there about that origin of the show and those points about the show, but I think it's particularly important um, now because we are so much farther away from World War II now that we need to remember that when they started this show, they were right on top of it. So when Bob talked about, I need to make sure veterans' groups are okay with that, it it would it was because these people. We're still living with those effects. To put now. it into perspective, it would be like
0: making a comedy about 9-11 today. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, But what Carol was saying about uh, the, something else that came of the casting is, yes, um, yes, it is true. Richard Dawson, who ended up playing Corporal Newkirk, did audition to play Colonel Hogan. He didn't get the part. You know, he, they wanted an American, they wanted, and though he could do an American accent, he just couldn't carry off the role. He did, wasn't the right character for it, and was there, you know, and, and Richard Dawson himself, um, in an interview done um, in the years before his death, was the first to say, I would have been terrible and that show, would have lasted three episodes if we were lucky. The person who was fit for that role, the casting of that show in general, was tremendous because Bob was fit to be Colonel Hogan, but Richard Dawson was fit to be Newkirk. And did was there some tension on the set? Yes. Was it be- between Dawson and, and Crane? Yes. Was it because he didn't get that part? Well, gee whiz, if you hang out for six years in a job that you're there for just because you didn't get the part you wanted, you're an idiot. And I don't think Dawson was an idiot. And they had different styles of work. Um, If you listen to to Robert Clary and other actors on set, Bob was prepared. He knew his lines. He was very professional on set. He knew exactly where he needed to be. He let the other actors shine. He he didn't stage stage. The person who did that was John Banner, uh, by all accounts, Um, and and so Richard Dawson said the person in the role was the person who needed to be in the role. They did have some differences. Bob actually alludes to some differences in a letter he wrote to Dawson as the show ended, um, saying, you know, thank you, everyone, but I think we all, you know, I think we all made it work to the good. and." As a matter of fact, they were close enough that um, they, Bob had, believed believe, now correct me if I'm wrong here, Carol, but Bob had always said, if you need anything and I'm not available to his children, you go see Richard yep. Dawson. Yep. And and if uh, when Bob continued to be offered roles um, in things that weren't, he didn't feel he wanted, one of those roles he said, I think you need to talk to Richard Dawson. And that was the family feud. So Bob could have done the family feud, and the same way that Richard said, you know, this would have lasted six weeks or three episodes if it was me doing Hogan, I don't think anybody of our generation can think of family feud and not think of Richard Dawson. And that was, by and large, thanks to Bob Crane. Yeah,
1: and that's what a lot of people don't know, you know, because you, you you see the stuff that's out there for clickbait people just put it out there and just keep that one little part and not put the whole thing in context. Yes, were he upset? Was was um, Richard Dawson upset? Of course he would have been upset. You know, I, get, I didn't get this role; I got that role. But after a couple of years, I mean, come on! He was, like you just said, it was six years. You know, you why would you keep going back to be the an same idiot job? To hang
2: around. Uh, you, you, you'd have to be a
1: masochist. <laughs> you know, it's like I just want to well, suffer yeah, exactly. pain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Especially since the opportunity, I mean, they were all locked into a five-year contract. Um, but after five years, the opportunity came up for them. To, they, they re-signed for another two. I mean, Hogan's years was supposed to go for seven seasons, not six. Uh, it was... Um, unceremoniously cancelled uh, at the end of season six due to what is now referred to as the rural purge, where a lot of the shows, primarily on CBS, were just cut to make way for more shows like Archie Bunker and things of those nature, which t- took on the the um, you know the the topics of the day rather than you know Hogan's Ears, Gilligan's Island, that sort of thing. Um, but and that was at the time when Ivan Dixon, who played Kinchlow decided to to break and go on and do other things. And people always ask, you know, why did he leave? Oh, he must have hated Bob Crane. No, 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 no. He went on to do more serious work in directing. He he became a very, very well-known director. Um, It had nothing to do with Bob. It had to do with moving on in his career. And any of those cast members, uh, aside from the big three, Bob, Berger Plumper, and John banner probably, would have you know, had that opportunity at the end of the five-year contract to do just as Ivan Dixon had done and, um, and move on to do other things. So if there was going to be that I hate this because moment, it would have come at, at the end of season
1: five. And also a lot of actors get tired of doing the same role year after year. Some of them are fine with it and they, and they bring things new to it. It's just like in theater. Some, some performers will go in theater and they'll do those runs in the show all the way through. I think there was, um, I'm trying to, I can't remember the actress's name, but in cat, she was like doing it for over 20 years, the same role. And, um, but other actors will do it for a, a season or two or a year or two. And they will be like, okay, I've done this. Now I want to go on to the next um, challenge. And, Ivan Dixon was just that. He said, "Okay, I had a 5-year contract. I did it. Now I want to go on and, you know, do something different that helps me because if the, if he if he was to keep doing it, people would say, "Yes, you got constant money, constant that." But then, you know, if you invested your money right for this 5 years, you're fine and you can also look at it as yes, I'm getting money, but how many times you, uh, people complain they're in a job, they're not feel, they're not feeling it anymore. And he finally was able to move on and um, and get to that other thing
2: also, um, Hogan's Heroes was also unique in, or fairly unique, um, which I know is a contradictory term, but in that if you watch the show, you will find that with the exception of Verna and Bob, um, just about every actor is missing from at least one episode. And that isn't because they were sick or necessarily had money issues. It was because that show allowed those actors to go off and do other things while they were doing Hogan's Heroes. So you know, Larry Hovis in particular, you watch laugh you'll find him all over the place. It was tremendous. I just watched, said to someone the other day, we were, I was watching the first episode of, of laugh and there was Larry Hovis. Well, that started after Hogan's Heroes, and there he was. Um, so Hogan's Heroes gave them the opportunity to go and do some of those other things, So if they really hated what they were doing on Hogan's Heroes, they would just go and do those other things. And if they didn't, then they still have the opportunity, you know, to to spread their wings a bit and do those things and still come home to the security of their locked-in five years here we are. And I could be wrong here, but because these were all supporting characters, at some stage, if... Dawson had come to them and said, look, I want to go after three years. Chances are he could have bought out the rest of this contract. And I don't have any physical evidentiary basis for that. It's just logic because they did have the opportunity to put other people in those places in need.
1: Well, it would be really easy to do script wise, you know, because the nature of where they're at, they can easily rotate different people. And if they needed to, and you brought up Larry Hovis, I'm trying to remember, if I read this correctly, but in Hogan's Heroes, isn't it rare that we ever see his left hand uncovered? Yep.
2: <laughs> Not as rare as you'd think. Yeah. It shows up
0: from time to time. There's, there's, a, I, I can't remember the name of the episode, but there's a spy that's um, in camp, and he shakes hands with him. He's been washing, you know, some clothes, and he shakes hands with him, and he, you know, does this, and he has the ring on. And um, yes, yeah, he he generally does try to keep it. Um,
2: he a love on yeah was, Carter the loves a lot he always yeah. looked like he was freezing Carter mm-hmm. always had on the fur coat yeah. and the gloves yeah. and the buffs <laughs> and, and the thing um and they just made that a part of his character yeah. but he had a wedding ring that he did not take off and he did not take it off because it was blessed by the pope and he promised his wife that he would not take it off and we and, and it gets picked apart to death on the Facebook pages, oh my goodness! At least once a month, he said, "Did you see Larry Hovis's left? Did you see his ring?" It's like, oh my god! And yes, I know that in a, a real POW camp, he would not have been allowed to have that ring on. Um, however, having said that, in the sixties, people didn't stare that closely at the TV screen and pick those things apart and close and zoom in on those things on their DVR and go back and rerun it and watch it seventeen times to see if they missed a someone know giving someone a side eye or whatever you know these were just things um that that were just there but you know yes he had a he always very often had gloves on and whatnot but they didn't seem to worry very much and while we're at it carol let's talk about bob's german accent oh the german accent so awful (laughs) awful
0: adware german (laughs) oh so poor bob was given the direction to do his German accent um, very poorly. Uh, he actually could do a very good German accent. And if you listen to, going back to radio, Man of a Thousand Voices at KNX, he, he's done German accents uh, as part of his radio show. But because, so, so the directors told him to do it poorly, because they thought it would be funnier because again, you're looking at this as a parody. It's in the 1960s. They're, you know, they're looking at things to just get that quick laugh. But what it translates to is Bob does not know how to act. He doesn't, he's so terrible. He can't even do this German accent. Um, Oh, and it just makes for one more thing that people can pick apart about him that, you know, he he didn't know his lines. He flubbed all his lines. He he you know couldn't do the accent. Uh, when we get later on um, into the later nineteen seventies, when he does the Love Boat, you know that role had in the script that he has to break down and cry. Uh, he's acting. He he's not really breaking down and crying as Bob Crane. He's breaking down and crying as the character. But because that Love Boat episode comes out. Just a few months before his murder. Oh my gosh, he can't even hold it together on the set. Why well, can't we? Yeah. And so, you know, all of these things are so bizarre that any it, it, it wouldn't even be
2: looked at twice. I don't think for any other actor, but because and it's Bob said Crane that too. Yeah, Carol. I think yeah. um, we look at it now. Say in the eighties, nineties, nineties. Tens, whatever, and go, Geez, that accent's terrible! Isn't that awful? But maybe in the sixties it was funny. And you know, it has to been yeah, time somewhere for yeah. context.
0: Sure, absolutely. So you've got you know the, the the directors telling him do it poorly, make it make it sound goofy, make it sound yeah. really silly. You know, you've got Richard Dawson, Larry Hovis, even Ivan Dixon, and um, I don't think Robert Clary did did too much in the way of German accent, but, but those three certainly would, you know, put on a a fairly good German accent. And then you get over to Bob and it's like, (laughs) what the heck, you know, and, and we would ask, you know, what about that German accent? And Jerry London, I think is the one that came right out and said it and said, we told him to. We told him to, and then when you go back and look at, and, and again everything in context, you go back and you look at his radio work and you listen to some of his clips where he's doing German accents because he's doing, you know, Ludwig von Drake from, you know, the the, the type character. Um, yeah, you know, and, you know, he's he's able to do it. He's just been directed to not to do it, and you're going to take direction. You know, you're not going to sit there and argue and say, "Oh no, I'm going to do that." I'm to do that. You know. he's
1: he's going to do what he's told to do because the director's told him to do it. I'm going to put a different spin on it than the, the, I think the two of you are looking at, you're looking at it that it was for humor. I'm thinking it humanizes the character because if you have Bob, if you have Colonel Hogan perfectly be able to pull off a German accent, he's able to do this perfectly that perfectly. It's almost like he can do too much really well. And it shows that he needs the other guys by having him's accent not be as good. So in a sense, it could be something to not make him as perfect. You know, just to have a little something I, that's off. I'm just throwing it out there.
2: I would agree with that if they mentioned it. Um Because the places that he uses it, if you've watched these shows as many times as we have, and maybe you have.
1: Oh, no, no, um, I concede. I concede I, I, I you oh, two have seen this have. I mean, way more high have. have. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Maybe you have. You know, there are others who do insane things like us. Um, but if if he didn't do the accent well in some of the places where it's really bad, he'd have been shot. You know? <laughs> so he had to do it well. He had to be larger than life. So I think um, it was really done for the audiences. I mean, they told us it was done for humor. Very mm-hmm
0: a couple of episodes and the one I'm thinking of right now is the one where you know he is Hogan go home uh, where yeah. they're trying to get him home and and um, he's going to be on the Berlin Express and mm-hmm. they've already got the bombs planted that are going to blow up the Berlin Express he's like you hear that guys I'm going to the Berlin Express oh my god you hear that I'm going on the Berlin Express you know and he kind of loses it a little bit Um and you know, of course, there's all these things that that you know prevent them from intercepting that truck because, uh, of
2: course, Colonel Crittenden Mainly Crittenden. Yeah. and you know <laughs> the tree falls the
0: wrong way, and as he's like, oh my gosh, you know. But um, but that to me in that episode, um, I remember being hanging out with some Hogan's Sears fans. Gosh, twenty years ago now, and we did the equivalent of a drinking game. Only we used M Ms, and it was you know with you know Schultz says you know I know nothing. You eat one M M&M. M if you eat if if Colonel Klink, you know says Hogan you eat two you know whatever. But if Colonel Hogan's voice reaches like the octave up to here, you eat the whole bag. I see. Only happens like, like twice, <laughs> you know. So if his voice cracks, that's what it was. If Hogan's voice cracks, he eats the whole bag. Um so there had a whole episode. bag on that episode
1: why
0: <laughs> <laughs> I probably need to, to lose weight <laughs> but um, <laughs> but they you know there are a couple of episodes where his vulnerability does come through and it's not, Do not often Rights of one. oh yeah, another yeah. one beautiful yeah. episode yeah so and i like those episodes because that does show that he is human and the character you know we're talking hogan and but yeah The the Hogan character is human. He is not invulnerable. However, he does have this, you know, air of perfection about him. But then when these little pieces creep through, it it really, I think, heightens that that tension Mm -hmm. even more. Um, Which when we talked to uh, some of the directors, Robert Butler especially, talked about uh, war being the perfect backdrop because, you know these guys can get shot. They can they can get killed at any minute. They can be arrested. They can be hauled off. They're, you know, there's so much underlying tension. Mm-hmm. And so when Bob talked about, you know, like at the early episodes of Hogan's Heroes, Bob is, you know, kind of still being that very flippant, glib character um, that you would hear on the radio. He's not being very uh, even and... A, more of the leader that you see from about midway season one through the end um he has been told by someone you know you can't be you know you have to be what's known as the straight man meaning everything bounces off of you you're you're the one that all the jokes bounce off of um you can be goofy and silly with clink and with schultz but when you're with your men you need to be the leader and so he took that very seriously. They told him, you know, think John Wayne. And if you watch some of the episodes of Hogan's Tears when he's getting really, you know, tough with his men, you can hear a little bit of John Wayne coming through, I think, anyway. Um, but he really takes that to, that very seriously in that he is the leader. And he, he portrays Hogan as the leader. He often referred to it as, I'm like big daddy to the guys. Um, and and he, he really worked very, very hard at that role. Um, people think he was just playing himself, but but he was not.
2: And and all kudos to the writers here as well, um, because as good as the acting is, and it really is, and the quality of the guest stars, and the quality of the, the cast and the casting, um, they had some amazing scripts. I mean, they had some... I mean, there's only one episode that I won't watch, um, and it's because I can't stand how they created one of the characters, but that's okay, um, as the ultimate weapon. Um, however, um, they they wrote the most extraordinary stories and had, and even if it's a story that you've heard before, what they did was mix that comedy of you know the humor good humor comes out of drama um in a show like that i mean you can get a good slapstick show you can get a good sketch comedy show or whatever but if you have a show like hogan's heroes you need a story and you can't make fun of the war and they were all very conscious of that the writers were very conscious of that the directors the actors certainly were all very conscious of that and when you get shows um like two nazis for the price of one um, or, or even even Lord Chudleigh's lover. Um, you know, you you get some real comedy, but in the middle of that comedy, you've got an extraordinary drama, and a lot. There's a lot at stake in many of these stories, and the writers put that out there, and the directors were able to pull all of that out of the actors, so that the whole package just shone so brightly there's a reason that show won awards and that the actors won awards or were nominated um it was it was just very thoughtfully done even though people didn't necessarily think it was in the beginning
1: certainly agreed and, and one of the things i want to bring up that both of you said a lot of people think that bob crane was never acting and i think what a lot of people realize is He's such a natural actor. And what I mean is not like it was easy for him, but where it looks like it's natural. It's like he's reading the lines for the first time. And um, James Gardner, to me, is a good example of another person who's an example of a natural actor where nobody ever thinks they're acting. And I think people re- forget that that's what an actor is supposed to do. They're supposed to make it look like they're not acting, and this is the, this is the person you're looking at. You're looking at Colonel Hogan. Bob Crane is a totally different individual. There's going to be some similarities because yes, they're the same person and they're going to have some characteristics that you can't help but carry over, especially after years of doing the role. But there are many, many, many differences. And And when you read the book, you'll realize these two people that this character and this person are totally different in a lot of ways. And it is a great acting performance. And I think, I think that's where people lose. Like you know, William Shatner and Captain Kirk. People think he's Captain Kirk, and it's just like he, he did it for a few years in several movies, but he's many other things, and he's you know he's not Captain Kirk. He's, he's Denny Shatner. Crane. He, he's no- <laughs>
2: Denny.
1: And, and of course, we all know Denny Crane always keeps saying, "I'm Denny Crane." You know, which is what we I'm love Denny about Crane. that character. Crane. Denny Crane. Denny Crane. <laughs> But I think that's yeah, no, I think he, that's what you're both alluding to. He's such a good natural. He yeah. was such a great natural actor.
2: And then he wanted studied. to learn. Yes. Carol, talk about his his uh, uh, well. The I let Carol talk about education and the opportunity to learn, and that, that's something Bob was always saying. But you know, he ended up he was hugging all the time. I said this mm-hmm. recently, I think, in our own podcast, Carol, that um, he wasn't during the sh- during the run of Hogan's Heroes. If he was a guest on another show, he was dressed as Colonel Hogan. Yes. And that's, I mean, and that's great cross promotion. But what it did was it locked him in as Colonel Hogan, Colonel Hogan, Colonel Hogan. You're on the Bing Crosby show, you're Colonel Hogan. You're on the Red Skeleton show, you might have a chance not to be Colonel Hogan, but you're doing this Christmas special, you're going to be Colonel Hogan. Even when he was on the Lucy show, he was a World War One pilot. He was still, and Schultz showed up. And Schultz showed so up. He, he was still, you know, you're in the wrong war um, he's still Colonel Hogan. He's always Colonel Hogan to a point where, at one point after um, after the show, and I can't remember the specifics, I was going to look it up, but there's no point because it's a general point anyway. Someone comes over and go, Hey, Colonel Hogan. Mm-hmm. And under his breath, he said, Bob Crane, damn it. Yes. Mm-hmm. He's not, he's always going loved- to be Colonel Hogan. And he loves yeah, Colonel right. Hogan and he respected Colonel Hogan and he loved his fans yeah. and he would do anything for him. But for the rest of his life, he was Colonel Hogan, and that's because he was doing such a good job acting. People forgot that he was acting.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And you know what didn't help
0: was not only were they dressing him up in, in Colonel Hogan's costume uniform everywhere he went during the run of the show, uh, but midway through the run of Hogan's Heroes, uh, he, along with Werner Klemper, John Banner, Leon Askin, who um, this General Burkholder, they go on and they do a film called The Wicked Dreams of Paula Schultz. Uh, Bob was originally cast as, he was the first uh, one that was cast from from the show. Uh, he was cast as the, the leading character, Bill Mason, uh, and it takes place during the 1960s in uh, West Germany where they're, they're, Elke Sommer is the athlete who's trying to defect from East Germany or East Berlin. Um, and uh, so Bill Mason uh, Bob's character is is you know kind of a swindler is you know on the black market kind of thing but he ends up you know helping her and whatever and so she pole vaults over the um, <laughs> the wall. Um, of course, the movie didn't do well in theaters, um, and a lot, just about everybody just. I mean, Bernard Klemper said, "I won't even watch the thing. It's like <laughs> yeah, just just forget we did it." Um, but that did not help, and so what ends up happening is is when audiences they when audiences went to see the film they were confused because there there was so much crossover with the hogan actors being in the show which bob did he he did this with all of good intentions um because they were on hiatus um he said to the producers of the film okay great you've got me cast in this now see how many people from Hogan's Heroes you can get in because you know they need to get paid they need to eat uh and so Werner Klemper and John Banner and Leon Askin took took them up on it you know it was a job paying paying job um but it had the opposite effect of uh confusion so so you have that film uh which you know we talked with with uh, Maureen author uh, who just loved making the film with Bob and had nothing but good things to say, uh, about the production of the film. Um, but I love her so much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but as far as, um, Bob being Hogan that, that was, you know, he was typecast almost immediately out of the box. Mm-hmm. Now, prior to Hogan's Heroes, he was, um, studying, to become a better actor. So he's been on Dick Van Dyke with his one uh, guest appearance. He's been on the Donna Reed show. Donna Reed took Bob under her wing um, quite a bit. And she really coached him uh, on the set of of the Donna Reed show. And there isn't anybody who would deny that Donna Reed is, you know, partly responsible for Bob's success because she really did uh, bring him, you know, around into the the acting world um she turned him on to taking a course with stella adler um which we've seen his uh stella adler notebook which you know i mean people people don't realize that the um the depth to which bob was going to try to better himself in his craft uh, they think he was a one-hit wonder on Hogan's Heroes, and then after Hogan's Heroes, did little little things. Um, but that's not really the case. And so, you know, reading through his notebook, um, it, it's it's really interesting to see how hard he was working uh, to become a successful actor. Uh, he gets his success and his fame from Hogan's Heroes, but it really isn't until we get. Further into the nineteen seventies, um, and close to when he is murdered, that he finally starts to break from that typecasting and starts to take on those roles that made him uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, we haven't touched at all on uh, the Bob Crane Show on NBC, which was a, a terrible um, flop by critics and audience. Uh, well, I don't know; the audience didn't like it so much, but the critics hated it um, because he was still trying to break out of this whole typecasting. Um, Hogan uh, yeah, and he got in his he, own way and he got in his own got way. his
2: own way Bob was very good at getting in his own way as well so um, but that that whole that whole thing just literally but that's also learning and, and that's also
0: learning and you know as we move closer to the 1980s uh, somebody recently commented on one of our posts on um, one of the Facebook posts we had up this week uh, that if Bob had lived into the 80s, the 1980s sitcoms they were how many of them were ensemble casts? i mean you have night court you have cheers you have murphy brown you have you know you have all of these ensemble casts that are rich for the type of humor that bob would have just excelled in would he have been a director would he have been an actor um you know it there was so much opportunity and he was heading in that direction um You know, will would he have ever, you know, broken free of that sexual addiction? He was seeking help for it, uh, professional help for it. Uh, Linda and I, indeed, we like to think that he would because everything he put his mind to, he he succeeded in. Um, But had he done that, had he put his mind to it and moved on into the eighties, the eighties would have been his decade for a comeback. I think.
1: I agree with you, and. Now, there's, you brought up The Wicked Dreams of Paula Schultz, but he also did a couple other movies I wanted to bring up because you know, we do talk about the movies a little bit on this podcast, being it's in the title. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, Super Dad. Yes. How, how did he enjoy doing it and, and being that, being the dad and Super Dad?
2: <laughs> he had quite an experience doing Super Dad. Um, Bob was, Super Dad was, you know, your typical Disney doofus dad, tries to fit in with his daughter's life, doesn't approve of the daughter's boyfriend. Um, That is actually where he ended up doing some work with Ed Begley Jr. um, as one of the surfer dudes, Um, Kurt Russell, young Kurt Russell, and Barbara Rush, um, Joe Flynn from McHale's Navy. Uh, But um, he was not the first choice of that film. Gid Young was the first choice of that film, and after they had some differences, Um, gig was fired and they said we need someone and they said bob crane and for for anything that he had going for him or not going for him bob had a likability factor um, that was retained even when he wasn't on the air so the chance to have bob in a disney film doing a, a role is you know spot on let's grab him and again according to those who worked with him very professional on set Um, very, uh, very prepared, Um, considering how quickly he had to come in. Dick Van Patten, actually, it was his bestie in that, wasn't he, Um, said that Bob was a real man's man, that he was a real, uh, a real pleasure to work with. And Bob himself, um, you know, it it was a bit more of the, you know, Disney, it, it was right in line with the other kinds of Disney work that was going on at that time, you know, Herbie and what not those kinds of, of films and haunts and all Shaggy D. that. Shaggy D.A. Shaggy D.A., you know, My uh, Monkey's Uncle and all those. Um, and all of those, they, so typical Disney fair, which is really not Bob's joyful place to be. Um, but it was work, and he was a man who had alimony to pay, and he had kids to raise, and a wife and a, and a young, young, very young son. Um, Scotty was under two at that stage. Um, and he, and he was grateful, um, to have the work. And it was another way of moving into, into film. He really put himself into it. Um, it was a very physical role for him. Um, he's not a very physical guy. Um, you know, he had to, he, he tried jet skiing. Was um, it jet skiing and something, and he hurts himself. He keeps hurting himself. Yeah. It's just they said, you know, and even on the set of the film, uh, and, you know, he was. He said, you know, I was limping at some stage. He said, "Oh, you're doing that great." He said, "Yeah, wonderful. I'm really limping here. I've hurt myself doing it. Can we just stop for a minute?" Um. And he, but he was, he was grateful to do it, and he went out and he did the interviews, and he thought this is a chance to do some real work, and thought that there would be more to it, and and in the end, there wasn't much. Um. But um, it it wasn't an extraordinary, you know, outstanding film. It's not one that people often remember. I mean, you think of 70s Disney, and you do think of, like, you know, Herbie the Love Bug, and the Shaggy DA, and the Monkey Stunkle. And, you know, you think of those, uh, the computer wore tennis shoes, and um, you do think of those classic classics. It didn't become a classic classic, um, but it is certainly standard Disney enjoyable to watch. Um, and he was glad to have the work. So he, he, um, as soon as they said, would you, he went, yes. They didn't even get the words out of, you know, would you do this? It was, would you? Yep. Yeah, thank you very much. Off we go back into film. Um, Bob just wanted to work and he did see, and I believe it was Dick Van Patten who said this, and I think also, um, Ted Langs from the Love Boat said same thing. He looked, this is a job, you know, Bob. Bob had ego the way every actor has some ego. You gotta I mean, and I'm an actor and I've got some ego. You gotta think you're good at it or you're not gonna stand up there and do it. But he didn't let his ego, it was a healthier ego. It wasn't a I am the star and I want green towels only and I would like you to separate my M and M's by color. And you know, and Bob didn't drink and he didn't smoke and he worked. He worked and he played the drums. And if you gave him work, he was gonna take that work and do the very best he could with it. And as an actor's actor, which is what some have called him, whether he had limited success outside of particular roles or not, he would take what he was given and follow direction and do what he was told. And if he made suggestions, they would be minor. Um, If they were things he wasn't familiar with, the Bob Crane show certainly was an exception to that. We know how that turned out. Um, But he wanted to work. And so having the chance to work in such a huge franchise such as Disney um, was something he was going to grab onto with both hands. And there is actually a fairly long interview um, recorded um, where he he goes into great detail uh, about it. And he was happy to do it. Happy to do it.
1: And I know the other film I wanted to bring up was Gus. I know he has a small role, but I love Gus. Yes. You know, it hit me at the rate. You know, I was, I was like seven or eight years old when I saw Gus and I mean Don Knott's, you know, the the donkey that can just kick balls no, forever. Uh mm-hmm. and he's the sports cast, a sports announcer. Yes. And who has ego and then loses his voice at the big game. I, I mean you just love yeah. it. He's in there and and he's only in the film probably for like I don't know, two, three minutes or five four minutes. Five, five minutes,
2: five. yeah.
1: But but it's five mm-hmm. minutes of gold.
2: Yeah. It is.
1: And again, Literally. that really
2: took him back to, um, radio. to radio and that that kind of performance art that, you know, when you watch him as, as the old Pepper Pot um, on Gus, in Gus, you are seeing the Bob Crane from KNX and ICC and LEA and LIZ, you are at BIS, and you are seeing the Bob who just loves being on the air. And did he do that with a little extra gusto and guts? <laughs> yes. Yes, he absolutely did. Um, but that was, it was just, it was just, a, it was almost like a cameo roll. It was yes, five absolutely, minutes yeah. gold. Yep. You know, five minutes of gold that you just go, oh, you know who was in that? Bob well, mm-hmm. Crane was in that for a minute and he did this. And it was memorable and it was there. But again, it was a short-term thing. He did have other things on the go. He did do a couple. He did do one other film, which was still a theatrical film, but he did um, in the 60s, in 69, I believe it yeah. was. Um, Carol's better with those dates than I am, but I think I'm right. No, he actually, I think it's Um, With Lillian Gish and um, Helen Hayes. Yeah. Uh, and, and Fred, Fred Quinn. Uh, and it, it was again, that chance to work with some of these people who are just extraordinary. Um, and and just, he was, as always, um, grateful for the work, grateful for the work, grateful for the opportunities to work with people. Um, and something we haven't really talked about um, too much or at all here, but we have mentioned in other areas, is that Bob was always very conscious of how he got where he went. He was always very conscious that people had helped him, that people had supported him, whether they be fans, where he was very, very conscious of his fans and always made time for them, or whether it was people who helped him professionally. Um, and he always tried to return the favors. Um, so he was very conscious of um, if it, it, he was needed to fill in for something, who knows? You know, yes, Gig Young was getting these parts that Bob wanted when he was in Super. You know, when by the time he got the Super Dad, it was yes, okay. Well, Gig Young's out of the way for this one, and I'm not suggesting that he thought, "Yay, he's been, you know, he's left." But it was that's the kind of role that I could play. I'm going to slot right in there. Um, and if somebody gave him that opportunity and then needed him to fill in for a weekend or come and do this spot here, or just he was there because he was very conscious of the fact that, you know, you you paved the way for me. I'm going to help you. I owe you. He was always very humble in that. He never thought he did those things alone. The only thing he ever did alone was radio.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I want to add to that. As far as, you know, Bob remembering his roots, Bob remembering um, others. But Bob was also very charitable, too. And his philanthropic work is not often talked about. Very little is known about it. But he did so much for so many people, groups. Um, He Every year he would go back to Connecticut uh, in the 1970s. um, He would go back to Connecticut because he was friends with the— Cerebral Palsy Executive Director, the Connecticut chapter of Cerebral Palsy Foundation. And, you know, when Cerebral Palsy Foundation did their national telethon, you know, they would cut away to the local, um, you know, local affiliates or or whatever and and have the local um, ones go on the air. Bob would turn down the national Cerebral Palsy, uh, which was going to pay him $20,000. And instead, he, he would fly back home to Connecticut. And he would do the local portion for next to nothing for, for basically just travel expenses. Um, And Elliot Dover was, was the executive director at the time. And he had known Bob from uh, WLIZ and WICC back in the fifties. And he said, I, you know, it always amazed me that he would turn down national that was going to pay him so much money and instead come out here to help me for, for just basically travel expenses. I, I, I was just always, amazed that he would do that. Uh, Bob did that for so many groups. He would go out to military bases. He would, you know, basically as Bob Hope had done. Um, you hear all about Bob Hope, which is great, great that Bob Hope and other, others do that. Uh, but Bob Crane did it too. And he would talk at P.O.W., former P.O.W. Uh, conventions. And he did, uh, you know, American Lung Association and uh, Arthritis Foundation. And I, I just the list goes on and on of all the different charities that he would donate his time to another one was the armed forces radio network where in 1968 and 69 he donated hours upon hours of his time just cutting these records like you know good morning Vietnam you know they cut the records and they would send them over for you know our troops over in Vietnam to listen to and yes they would have um, you know the DJs over there playing as you would see uh, in the film but but he, they also had the records, and the records had to come from somewhere. And so Bob would donate all of this time sitting in the studio recording, recording, recording all of these albums to send over for our troops. So lots that he did um, does not get any credit for. Very, very, very little credit for.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I'm happy I have both of you here because, like I said, this episode, for listeners that are hearing it after it comes out, it's coming out on his birthday. And I'm looking at it as a celebration of his life. You know, I mean, there. I, I I really don't think we should even talk about. I mean, we could talk about the end if you want to, but I think really it's it's been publicized so much. He died at an untimely age, at forty nine. Um, who knows what would have what he would have brought in the decades that followed? I mean, like Linda brought up, the eighties could have been a gold mine for him um, with what he could have done on television and possibly in film. Uh, we'll never know, and that kind of stuff. And it, it's just one of those things it's, it's um a lot of life's end too soon. His did. And um, it's just, we we'll always can speculate about what it could have been, but um, I don't think, I mean, we, people could follow both of you though, on your, not only just read the book, Bob Crane, the definitive biography, but your podcast.
2: Yes.
0: Yes. We have actually two podcasts. Uh, we have flip side, the true story of Bob Crane, which has been the working title for the book for a while. Um, um and um, and then Hogan's Ears Review, where we talk about uh, Hogan's Ears, uh, actually, uh, per the title. And uh, we are very, very busy with work and all kinds of things. So we don't record as much as we would like. But we, the, the podcasts are still there. We do still, when we get our uh, times um, together where we can um, you know record. Uh, because as you know, Steve, it's not just recording. It's also post-production which takes some time as well um so there's a lot that goes into it we're you know but we do have them we do love doing them uh the one thing that i will say about um you know the the end of his life uh people think that we gloss over it we don't know about it we're uneducated about it we don't understand it we are trying to make Bob look like a saint uh all of all of that uh, to answer all of those assumptions, no, that is not true. We do know all about it. We do probably know um, have a deeper understanding of it. Neither Linda nor I are are psychologists, uh, but we did talk to psychologists about this particular addiction. We also talked at length with um, the man who had been helping Bob, a counselor. Uh, both an, he was an ordained minister and um, an addiction counselor. He did not. Um, Specialized in that kind of addiction but he was helping set Bob up with an addiction counselor, a sexual addiction counselor out on the uh, West Coast for Bob to start seeing after he got home from uh, Scottsdale which never happened. But briefly to say we absolutely know we like this particular episode, episode of your podcast Steve is a celebration. We celebrate his life. We will talk about his murder and Uh, the sexual addiction when we are asked but the fact that we choose to focus on his life does not mean we are ignorant of the rest of it it is Mm -hmm. that we provide uh, a full picture of him as a human being Um, and honestly he was someone who wanted to be a good person was trying to be a good person but he was a human being Uh, and one of um, my favorite quotes told to me from a friend of mine was, you know, he was, you know, Bob Crane was not perfect, but he was perfectly human. And that that sums us all up, I think, you know, most of us anyway.
2: The other quote that I, I, I couldn't agree with that more, but the one that sticks in my head aside from um, Joe Cosgrove, uh, who was one of the people to welcome Bob into Los Angeles saying, um, these issues were the specs on the Parthenon. Um, as in there was so much more to Bob um, than what the media now sees and the scandal sees, uh, was a quote from a staff announcer at KNX named Leo McElroy, who knew Bob well. Um, And I'm going to quote him directly because I think it just perfectly sums up um, exactly what we aim to do um, with this book. Um, And by focusing on his life instead of his death, And that is this, Bob was kind. He was kind to those he worked with. He was kind to those he knew. There were many sides to Bob and not all were bad. And I don't think anybody said it any better. I agree.
1: And listeners, just so you know, I'm the one who made the decision to not bring up the other stuff because if I'm interviewing somebody, I would not go that that path if I knew the person I was interviewing had something that came up unless they wanted me to and that kind of stuff. And that's just not the way I focus on the work and the other stuff that we want to learn more about. So that was a decision made by me and not by Carol or Linda. They did not know until I said to them at that point that we weren't going to talk about Mm -hmm.
2: that. (laughs) We don't shy away from it, but we're just so sick of hearing about it. It's just so nice to hear about the rest of it. None of us, can say that every single thing we've done in our life, we would love the world to know about. And Bob didn't have the chance to hide anything in the end. Everything was exposed because of how he died. So it is so nice and refreshing to just say, this is who the whole person was. So thank you for wanting to focus on the person, not the scandal. Yes, I second that.
1: Well, you're welcome, and thank you both for taking the time out to um, talk to me for a couple hours about Bob Crane and 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 really, I think for listeners that are getting this, you're, you're really learning a lot more about what he did, who he was, and everything about him. We just touched a small fraction of what's in the book, and I'm sure what's on your podcast. So it's like you can seek out both things and really start to get a better idea of the of research that both you did and and hear all these different stories and i know people will say sometimes you'll have people with conflicting stories it's just like when i interview different people they were all in the same movie and one person were, each person i can i could talk to four people about the same movie the same scene or whatever and they'll come up with four different versions each one of them is true to their point of view because that's the way they felt about it so you know, so if there is a conflicting yeah. story, that, that, that person's story is true. It's just in the way they perceived it and how they the processed the information. So it's it, it, it's, it's not like it's, it's the Bible, but it's as close as you're going to get to a Bible on Bob Crane.
0: I'll say, too, that, you know, when we talked to hundreds of people, it was nice and refreshing to hear what, like Arlene Martel said, corroborated with what Cynthia Lynn said, corroborating with what, you know, this person said, like, it it turned into, like, in the beginning, we were, yeah, nervous, like I had said earlier about what we were going to learn. But then it turned into, you know, everybody just had so much good to say. They couldn't, they they just, it, it was like, like an avalanche of so much good and so much corroboration uh, from one to the next, to the next, to the next, from all the way back to his early days in Connecticut and in school, all of his school friends, all the way through to the night he died, the corroboration of him as being a good person always was shining through.
2: Um, And to add to that too, Carol, is is the importance of people understanding that we didn't, leave out anything that was unpleasant as in we didn't say we're going to make this book to show people that Bob Crane was a beautiful human being we said we're going to write a book to tell people who he was and we I mean it got to the point where we were changing things when we were in the final editing stage somebody else would come forward and say hey I have something to say I mean of God okay let me talk to you um you know we talked to as many people as we could there were people that said no to us and continue to say no to us. And if we had a chance to, you know, put another edition of this book, we would go back to them again and still say, would you please talk to me? And if they said no, that would be fine. But, you know, there were people who had some dissenting opinions. They were rare, but they were there. And we sought clarification and elaboration and where we could get it. We included it. So we didn't, um, you know some some people have criticized our book saying oh and you're just saying how wonderful bob was like well i'm not saying it but these 200 people are saying it and they're not saying that he was perfect and we didn't hide anyone we 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 used everyone that we spoke to. <laughs> everyone we spoke to is in that book somewhere everyone um and the idea that Um, we chose to leave out parts of who he was is just simply not valid. We wanted a whole picture and no one is a perfect saint. But we had friends who, you know, wanted to give us all the saintly stories. And we had interviews. I remember particularly when we spoke with Gary Owen, what a joy that was for me. Um, But when we started that interview, Um, As many people did, they would say, I'll talk to you about anything, but I'm not going to talk about that. And that's exactly how they phrased it. Not going to talk about that. Most people didn't know about that. All they knew was the person that they dealt with from day to day to day. And the person they knew is the person that we present in the book. Um, And so we need people to know that this is The Bob that his friends knew, that his family knew, that his co-workers knew. And as much as we could get into the Bob that Bob knew, that's in there. Um, But we hid nothing. We left out nothing. Um, We didn't intend to turn him into a saint. He comes out as a good person but that's because that's what 200 people told us that he was. And so I have no reason to doubt that. I want to say to um, all of
0: our work, the podcast, uh, all of our social media, um, you know, everything that we do, we do a lot. Um, we make a lot of it available for free. Uh, my publisher does have to eat, so I have to sell the book. Uh, but um, <laughs> but uh, a good chunk I'll of our... It a good chunk of our author proceeds do go to charities, uh, books that I sell at uh, the Liberty Aviation Museum through their gift shop. And when I'm there giving presentations, that goes right back to the museum. The Liberty Aviation Museum, for people who don't know, is where the Hogan's Hears, uh display is. They have uh, Hogan's uniform, Slinks uniform, Schultz's uniform, the coffee pot. Uh, so they have a growing display there of uh, all of those items. Um, I donate when I'm at Mid Atlantic. I donate to Martin's Charities, uh, which is St. Jude's uh, portions of the sales. I, I will have other things for sale at the at the table for for St. Jude's. So a lot of what we do does go back to charity, but um, a, a lot of what we know of Bob, just about all of it is is made available on our website, which is VoteForBobCrane.org. Uh, vote the number four BobCrane.org. And you know, it's because we believe so much in what we're doing. Uh, we believe so much in telling Bob's true story. We do it, it's very humbling. It's humbling because we are standing up for Bob. He's not here to tell his story for himself, uh, but it's also humbling because we are doing it for the people from his life um, who have felt either that they were silenced or felt the need to stay silent for all of these years um we share their recollections um and so it's and they're they're part of us now as much as they would say you know we're in this with you you know you're one of us now well we're one of them now we've become you know welcomed into their circle and so it does become very personal for us because we know them we know them and we love them as, as our you know many of them as as our own family so um you know Vote for Bob Crane.org. That's where you can find all of our work. Uh, and I encourage uh, you to go have a look and see who Bob Crane really was.
1: And again, thank you both for taking time to, to spend a couple hours with me. I know um, Linda's in to, uh, later later today. Actually, it's almost tomorrow for you. I think. It is. <laughs> it's closing into tomorrow. So she could tell us the lottery numbers so we can win Carol and be rich.
2: Think of the good we could do.
1: And and, and Linda, if you do that, I'm giving you half. I mean, I'm just going to split it right down the middle. Oh,
0: thanks. (laughs) Thanks a lot. What about me?
1: Well, if you give me the numbers too, Carol. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But um, but thank you both again. I, I think I had a great time, and I hope people. Will go out there and go to your website and go get the book or go listen to your podcast and just learn more about it and, and definitely watch Hogan's Heroes. I mean, it's it's pretty much oh, gosh, somewhere, yeah. everywhere, all the time. And you can get the um, the seat the DVD set, and then you have it every time you want to watch it. You just stick the DVD in, and I got that for my mom for one of her birthdays, and it's one of the things she sticks in every so often, um, you know, just to have fun.
2: Yeah. Thank you Absolutely. so much for having us and letting us talk about Bob's life. We appreciate it very, very much. Thank you so much, Steve.
0: Oh, you're much, welcome. Much,
1: much, appreciated. I hope everybody enjoyed that episode. I want to thank again, Carol Ford and Linda Groundwater for joining me, for talking about Bob Crane's life. And again, you can get their book, Bob Crane, the definitive Bi- biography. It's out there anywhere they sell books. So please, I recommend getting it and um, follow their podcast and all those other fun stuff. Our next episode is going to be a crossover with Monster Kid Radio. I, do, I joined Derek over there for Conan the Barbarian. And over here, Derek's joining Ben and I to talk about Conan the Destroyer. So I hope everybody enjoys that. And again, leave us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you feel about, tell us what you feel about the episodes and how we're doing. Um, otherwise we're gonna end the episode listening to Bob Crane, Bob Crane playing drums on the Smothers Brothers show. Hope everybody enjoys and have a good day. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, Colonel Hogan of Hogan's Hero, a fine guy, Mr. Bob Crane.